when parents dismiss their children's emotions or invalidate them or even punish the emotions, children learn to sort of push them underneath and those kids become more anxious because they don't know what to do with the emotions. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Hello, friend. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington, and I am your host. Today, we are talking about fear and anxiety in our kids. I have a very special guest, and my conversation with her was so um, fulfilling. I didn't want to let her go, honestly. We were chatting, and she had to leave, but she was so informative, and I know that you're also going to enjoy her book as much as I did. My guest today is Dr. Abigail Gowertz, or also known as Dr. Abby or Dr. Abigail. She is a child psychologist, mother of four, leading expert on helping families cope with trauma, and she's also the author of When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Anxious Parents and Worried Children, uh, which came out in 2020. This is one of those books that we need to have on our bookshelves because it's one that we reference all the time or you will reference all the time. So I highly recommend her book. She is also foundation professor in the psychology department at Arizona State University and editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Psychology. She has developed award-winning parenting programs and is the author of more than 100 publications. She has consulted for national and international organizations, including the U.S. Congress and UNICEF. She is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and the American Psychological Association. Dr. Gowertz has conducted research in the United States, Asia, Middle East, and Africa, and has been invited to speak widely in the U.S. and across the world on parenting and stress. I told you you would enjoy her. <laughs> Before we jump into this conversation, please take a moment to review the podcast on iTunes or to leave a rating as well. And you can do this on Spotify. Um, I hope you enjoy this interview. And don't forget to send me an email if you leave a review at info at because I will send you a free PDF that I have called Meltdown Mountain. And you can also read some of our blog posts at curiousneuron.com and follow Curious Neuron on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. I will not let you wait any longer. This one's too good to wait. Um, I will see you on the other side. Hi, Dr. Gortz. Thank you for joining me today at the Curious Drum Podcast. It's my pleasure, Cindy. Good to be with you again. Yes, again, because we've tried this twice. <laughs> and I'm glad that we connected finally, because what you have to talk to us about today and the conversation we're going to have is so important for many of us parents and grandparents. I know there are grandparents that listen as well. Um, it's something that we need to help our kids with. So we're going to be talking about anxiety, as I said um, at the beginning, anxiety and fears and kids. Um, I think it's always good to start off by defining things so that we're all on the same page. You know, I hear about parents talking about worries and and worries that you know are random or just about you know night worries about the dark for example versus stress about going to school or having an exam and then anxiety um you know is my child anxious should i go see a doctor so i think there's a really wide range there can you define are these words all the same can we use them interchange interchangeably or do we need to start realizing that there's a difference between them two different but Let's take worries. Like everybody has worries. 
worries are mm. completely normal and important part of life. Um, if we didn't have worries, then we might not be pushed to do certain things that might propel us along in this world. And so worries are important. The thing about worries and also about anxiety. So the same goes for anxiety. You know, um, anxiety is a feeling state. So I feel anxious. Um, there is there is sort of a facial expression that goes along with with having anxiety. Most people feel things in their body when they're having anxiety, like their heart might be fast or they might feel sweaty or their hands might be hot. And anxiety is also important for us. You know, we probably wouldn't survive if we didn't have anxiety. Think of all those scary things we might do if we didn't feel um, anxious. Um, so anxiety is very important. But there's so much, there's just the right amount, right? You don't have too little and you don't have too much. And so um, when we think about the difference between typical anxiety, typical worries, and the kind of thing that might make you want to take your child to the doctor or to a therapist, it's the point at which your child's worries or their anxiety, what they tell you they feel or what they show on their face, um, at the point at which that interferes with the things they should be doing, right? So if your child is anxious about going back to school after the holidays, that's perfectly normal. Lots of kids feel anxious. You changed your routine. You got to sleep in. Um, you got to hang out at home with mom and dad. Now you've got to go back to school and you've got to do homework and all those other things. That's perfectly typical. But the child who has a tummy ache and stays in bed when school's supposed to start and tells their parents they have a big headache or a big tummy ache or they must have a fever or they pretend to have a fever um, and really it's because they're scared to go back to school, that's not typical. And that's when we might want to start thinking about looking for help. I think when a parent hears like worries and anxieties, I think the common one that we experience as parents is our kids um, worrying or, or being afraid of the dark and, and and really struggling with that as parents. You know, there there are two parts to this question. First is when it comes to worries and, anxi and anxieties, I always think that we need to start with ourselves because even as myself, I've always struggled with being anxious around certain situations, whether it's social situations or, you know, things that I might be more afraid of than other people. But how do I teach this to my child, number one, if I'm struggling with this myself? And the second part of the question is really, how do we, I think we tend to tell our kids sometimes and using this example of nighttime, there's nothing to be afraid of, you know, mm -hmm. like the dark, <laughs> in the dark, and we don't realize what we're saying. Yeah. So I guess, can we begin by talking about as a parent when, when, how do we teach this to our kids if we are perhaps struggling with this ourselves? Yeah. And it's really tricky when we struggle with something ourselves, because it's much mm -hmm. harder for us to step back and think about how we want things to be for our child and what we can do to facilitate, you know, our child's healthy adjustment. And I'll never forget when I was a young mother and I was strolling with someone I knew, you know, with a, with a stroller and um, we walked past someone with a dog and she had a terrible fear of dogs and she covered up the blanket. She literally covered her baby with a blanket and said, don't look, don't look, there's a bad dog there. And I thought, oh, this poor child does not stand a chance, you know, and, and <laughs> I think often that's a very blatant example, but often we transmit worries um, to our children without really understanding that we're doing that. And sometimes we do the opposite, right? 
we're worried about something. We don't want our child to worry about it. So we say something like, there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> First of all, <laughs> our children see right through that, right? Mm. They see right through it. My mom is kind of, looks really hot and bothered. And they're saying <laughs> there's nothing to worry about. Something doesn't add up. But the other thing is, there's nothing to worry about. Those words mean to your child, you should not be worrying. That worry is a bad thing. And at the very best, what they'll learn is not to talk about it with you, right? Because I should be embarrassed of my worries. My mom said there's nothing to worry about. And so let me keep my worries to myself. And what we know, you know, there's a really amazing body of knowledge about, there's lots of research about emotions. And what we know is that when parents, you know, so often it's inadvertent, like it's not meant, but when they dismiss their children's emotions or invalidate them or even punish the emotions, children learn to sort of push them underneath and those kids become more anxious and more sad and because they don't know what to do with the emotions. Conversely, if we can figure out first what to do with our own feelings so that we can sort of really help our children deal with their big emotions. We call that emotion coaching. We can have kids who stand a chance because they'll figure out that there's some strategies that can help them deal with their worries, their fears, their anxieties. And experiencing all these emotions is part of life. I think it's important that our kids see that we experience them and that it's okay to have them, but that we need some sort of tools, right, to work through them. Exactly. That's another question that parents often ask me is, do I need to hide all my emotions from my child? Like if I'm sad, do I hide that? If I'm feeling anxious about something, do I hide it? My first response is what you just said. Kids know. It doesn't matter how young they are. They they sense it. I remember I had three kids in under four years. And by the time I had my third child, I had gained this habit of like singing through like feeling overwhelmed. <laughs> so I would just like sing a song. But I think I was singing at a faster pace <laughs> than normal. <laughs> and my, my, eld my oldest was about to turn four. And she said, Mommy, are you OK? <laughs> are you OK? And I was like, yeah, why? I'm, I'm just like singing like old McDonald. Like what's, what's wrong? And she said like, you don't, I don't think you're okay. And it hit me and I stopped doing it. But it hit me that it doesn't matter how young they are and how we're trying to mask and hide the fact that we're having a certain emotion. They sense it. Right. They're fantastic so detectives, children. They're really detectives and it can be very confusing for us to mm. pretend. But um, but at the same time, we don't want to overwhelm our children with our own big emotions. And so I'll never forget, you know, I've done a lot of work with families in which uh, mom or dad, and more often it's dad, goes off to war, mm. right? They're soldiers mm. and they go off to war. And I'll never forget, like time after time, mothers would come up to us because um, we'd work with parents through parenting in this context. And the moms would say, you know, I know that something happened in Afghanistan and I'm so worried about my husband and I don't know what to, I don't know what should I just mm -hmm. pretend nothing's happening? What should I, how should, what should I say to my kids? Mm -hmm. And it's a tricky balance because you, what you, you know, just like you don't want to say, everything's fine, let's have a party. You also don't want to say, actually, I'm really terrified that your dad's going to die. You definitely do not want to say that, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, but it's okay to say, you know, mommy's feeling a little bit sad right now. Just. There's a, you know, it's a lot of, lot of stuff going on and, um, you know, or mommy's, mommy's just going to hang out. I'm just going to hang out in my room for a, a few minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Not enough to make our kids worried about us. Cause that's the other 
thing sometimes that kids, um, what we know from a lot of work on on children of depressed mothers is that those kids become so focused on helping their mom feel better that then it also becomes really hard to navigate emotions um, because they have a mother who instead of being able to have the psychological sort of space to, to, to meet their child's needs, it's the opposite. The child's trying to meet the mother's emotional needs. And that's, um, you know, that's also not that's not so safe. And so it's a, it's a balance. It's, you know, what we say to parents and what I talk about in my book is figure out what it is that gets, makes you feel really stressed. So if you're coming across a situation, let's just say, take a really benign situation, the weather's bad and you really are scared of storms. So know that ahead of time, think about what you can do to regulate your own emotions? Does it help you to listen to classical music or have a hot bath or do some yoga or do some breathing, you know, short stuff? And then you can sit down and have the conversation or respond more effectively to your child. You're not lying. You're not telling them all the extent of the stuff. You're just being present for them and for their worries. I love that. Does this fall within, you have this this, um, this brilliant idea in the book of a parenting journal. Is this what would fall under that? Or can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, sort of keeping a parenting journal helps you, you know, we go through life so quickly, especially, you know, you talked about three kids in four years. I had four kids in, I had four kids in nine years. So I had a little bit more space between so, them. But, <laughs> you know, I used to joke that if we could get through the day with everyone having three meals and no one leaving the house without shoes, that was a great success. And a couple of hours sleep here and there, you know, great success. <laughs> yeah. We don't give ourselves, we're so busy. We, you know, and mm. we're usually parenting at the same time as we're trying to grow a career or at least working really mm. hard. And so there's so much going on. We rarely have time to reflect. And so being intentional and keeping a journal, even a, you know, even briefly can help us figure out what it is that gets us going. You know, what are the mm. things that stress us out? And and often there are two of us, right? Because there's, you know, when you have a two-parent family, then there's even more complexity around what mm -hmm. makes me upset, but doesn't get him going and what or her going and what makes her, her or him upset and doesn't get me going. And so, <laughs> um, so it's, so it, you know, being, I think I'm, I'm encouraging parents just to take a little bit of time to think about the stuff that we don't normally think about on their own emotions, right? Normally we mm -hmm. think about what we're doing, not what we're feeling. And we teach mm -hmm. kids that way as well. We rarely mm -hmm. talk about feelings. And so this is an opportunity to really focus and reflect on feelings. This is something that's interesting to me, that word, because reflecting on our feelings requires some sort of insight, right? Because when I, even with myself, I had to work through after I had my third child, that's when I started working on myself. And I love the idea of a parenting journal because I just by writing down um, when I was feeling overwhelmed or what was causing that, I started noticing that it wasn't linked to that specific situation that with my kids, it was linked to a discussion or an argument I had with a family member that was still on my mind. And I realized that I needed to set boundaries on conversations and phone calls with a specific family member um, because they were bringing in a lot of stress in my life. So there's that part that allows us to, only because of this journaling. But then the second part is, I've spoken about this with my husband a lot. Like he's always fine. Everything's good. <laughs> it doesn't matter if like the three kids are running around and it's bath time or, 
you know, I don't know, like this airplane, like lines, like in the backyard, it doesn't matter. He's good. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we, how do we as partners support each other's feelings um, when perhaps one partner isn't expressing feelings or, or hasn't learned how to do that either as a child? Or maybe it's just temperamentally different, right? Or that, you know, true. I mean, yeah. I think that's part of it. And that's another thing that we, you know, I talk about in the book. It's like, figure out who you are, you know, who, who are you and who is, who, who is like your mm. partner, right? Um, what get so in, in your case, if you have a pretty laid back, easygoing partner, then, um, and you are just about to lose it and it's six o'clock, it's the bewitching hour, then maybe it's his <laughs> turn to run the bar, you know? <laughs> mm. It's um, true. That's, yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah. you know, you're so right. Like, the other beautiful thing about keeping a journal and 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 really being aware there is some insight, but it's also like just being aware of what you're feeling and when you're feeling it. The um, you know, the other thing is is just to figure out what are the things that precipitate your feeling stressed and what are the things that then you're going to turn over to him to deal with. And when is it that you really need a break? Um, and, 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 and when I say a break, I don't mean like mommy going off, you know, to Florida for the weekend. I just mean like, you know, a few minutes to breathe. Maybe. Sometimes that's all we need. Makes a yeah. big difference. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I love, I love that we're focusing on, on the parents right now because we can't have this conversation about worries and anxieties and fears without talking about the parents. Can we talk about the opposite right now? Because perhaps there's a parent that feels that it's okay to just power through parenting and, and the years will pass and it's okay. You know, maybe they they don't feel the need to work on themselves yet or, you know, what would be some consequences that we can see or the impact of this if we kind of ignore our own emotion regulation skills and how we um, express how we're feeling? Yeah, I mean, I think... Look, there are people, again, I think this is somewhat temperamental, who are more or less willing to kind of look inside, right? Mm. It doesn't suit everybody to sort of think through, you know, go deep and and, and think about things in a certain way. It doesn't suit everyone. Um, however, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everyone should go through their own, you know, psychotherapy, and I think nor are you, <laughs> Um but I do think that being aware of mm -hmm. the things that get in the way of you being able to be effective is very important. And an example of that is we we role play this all the time in our trainings. You know, mom's had a really stressful day at work. The car is needs to go into the shop and she just can't afford the amount of money it needs to fix it. She's really stressed. And she comes in and her eight-year-old's supposed to be doing his homework and he's on television. That's doing a video game, and that's pretty typical. And she loses it with him, right? Now, why does she lose it with him? Well, probably not because of the fact that he's in front of the TV. Because if she thought through that scenario, it would be much more effective for her to say, hey. How was your day? So um, so tell me a little bit about the homework. Where are you with that? Okay, switch the video game off now and do your homework, please. You know, letting loose on him is really driven by the fact that she came in really stressed and this pushed her over the top. And we have to be also aware of the fact that we don't often have the opportunity to lose it at work. You know, we'd probably lose our job if we lost it at work. And so <laughs> we often displace our anger at, uh, you know, at other people onto people that we can displace our anger to. And, you know, 
most people show their most base feelings in the home. It's just what happens. Mm -hmm. We feel most comfortable. We're not so, you know, we're, we just do. As my, one of my colleagues, dear colleague used to say, the family is the crucible for strong emotions. It's true. Both kids and parents. It's true. We do express our emotions more strongly at home. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but the thing is that when I'm, you know, and most parents, I think, realize at some level when they're letting loose on their children or when their child does something that they shouldn't be doing and the parent has a disproportionate reaction, most parents realize that afterwards and they're like, oh, I could have handled that more effectively. But what needs to happen in order for you to actually be able to handle it more effectively is you have to kind of rewind and say, oh, I am, I'm recognizing that I am really stressed and I am about to walk into the house where I am likely going to be faced with a situation that will stress me more. So, okay, I recognize that I'm stressed. What can I do right now in the three minutes where I'm between the time I'm parked in the garage and I have to walk into the house that will allow me to be more in control and choose how I respond to my child, right? Because it's the the difference between what I call a reaction to your child and a measured or intentional response. Mm-hmm. And the difference between the reaction and the response is what can make our, you know, can can allow our children to really learn from us or the opposite, storm upstairs, slam the door, <laughs> ruin dinner time, etc. <laughs> and I, it's so true. I think... I love the idea of kind of anticipating what's about to come. And we usually know, let's say bath time, we know our kids are going to resist. <laughs> we know that they might not, you know, want to go to bed. But having that moment before you go up, maybe it's a uh, during your coffee or even taking extra, like your time walking up the stairs. I think it, it really helps to think about or anticipate what's about to come. What are some things that we can do? Because I often speak to parents who say, yeah, you know what? I've tried breathing. I've tried, you know, the deep breaths, but then I I snap and I yell at my kid and I immediately regret it. And I immediately feel the guilt around that. Um, what are some things that they can do in that moment when they're pausing in addition to to anticipating that might help them in that moment? Well, first of all, we can forgive ourselves. I mean, I think we're not very good at that as parents. And to be honest, broader society is not very forgiving either. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. probably, you know, there's always something to feel guilty about when you're a parent. So I think, I think that's a really important thing for parents to remember. Like we all mess up and actually it's a good lesson for kids as well, right? When a parent, you know, just snaps and then is able to go back to their child and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have shouted at you. Let's start over. Let's rewind. That teaches the child that I'm taking responsibility. We take responsibility for our emotions and I'm not putting it on you. So I think, I think it's, you know, A, let's forgive ourselves and B, let's use them, those, those, those red light situations as also good lessons for our kids. That matches the, we had an episode a couple of weeks ago where I spoke with a researcher 
and he was talking about mindfulness and self-compassion and he said he didn't have kids yet but he's like with all the research we've seen with er doctors that we've done with self-compassion if parents would just change that just work on self-compassion they would see a huge difference in how they respond to their kids and it matches exactly what you're saying so yeah any parent who's listening i hope <laughs> you see the, the 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 link now and that it's being repeated by experts as yourself that we do need to work on that absolutely you know yeah yeah that it's it sounds easy i know that it's not but it's so important for us to do it and we're not we really are hard on ourselves and hard on each other in society as well we are we're very judgmental yeah people have a sense of really strong sense of this is right this is wrong and Mm -hmm. just because i think you and i are both saying look here are some tools that you can use it doesn't mean that if you don't use it, oh, you're finished and your child's exactly. destined for a life in therapy or, or prison or <laughs> no, something terrible, no. you know. Um, no, I mean, I think as long as we're on the right path, as long as we use that situation to say, okay, how could I do it differently this time? And it could be as simple as, you know what, would you do bath time every other day um, if you have someone mm. else who you can share bath time with? Mm. Or you know, working with your kids on ways to make bath time simpler. We're going to have a family meeting and talk about bath time, right? What are some things that would make bath time easier for mom and for you guys? And, Mm -hmm. you know, go through a family problem solving activity and then make that plan and work on it. And, you know, just sort of anticipate the challenges so that you're not always caught in a situation where you have to go, not again, you know, Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what is, I, I read about cognitive distortion. Um, I can't remember if it was a research now or in your book, but I, I remember that I had seen the word. Do you, can you explain what that is? Yeah, that just simply means um, thinking, um, thinking about things in a way that's not really accurate. And we all, um, we all have cognitive distortions. Um, some, um, some of, some are worse than others. Right. So, um, and it can be any thinking, any, any, time or place where we think about something in a way that's not entirely accurate, such that if somebody was, you know, came in from the side and we told them we were thinking that they would be like, oh, that like doesn't jive with what I'm seeing. (laughs) Mm. Is this something that leads to more anxieties in people? Yeah. So, um, well, I can give you an example, a very, very, Mm. very extreme example, but I think it's good for illustration purposes. You know, I was once working with somebody who had been in the war in Afghanistan and he he was a translator. He he had been told to um, to say something in in Pashto, the prevailing language. Uh, uh, to the effect of, you know, get out of the way of the gate because we're going to explode the gate, stay out of the way. And he believed that he had um, made a mistake in the translation. And because of that, people didn't get out of the way and some people were killed. In his case, there was an investigation and he was absolutely found not culpable of anything that what he did was right. But he continued to believe that and a lot of his Trauma symptoms were rela- related to the fact that he felt so guilty because he believed he had done something wrong. And that was a co- that's a cognitive distortion. And yeah, so, you know, most of us, they're not at such extreme cognitive mm-hmm. distortions. But, you know, a distortion could be something as simple but as common as parents who have struggled with weight gain and um, feel they then have to really um, 
you know, they have really different ideas about food and children. And though their own cognitive distortions about food can easily spill over into their children. So when we think about ourselves, we probably don't want to limit ourselves to thinking about the things that make us stressed and more likely to be irritable, but also the ways that we behave based on the things that we think that may not be entirely logical. And that's the beautiful thing about having a partner and a a co-parent is that you can sort of bounce these ideas off against each other um, and and see, like, is that weird what I'm like (laughs) doing? (laughs) You know, is it? It's kind of like you need need to externalize it because if we stay within our heads sometimes, like it gets bigger and bigger, right? Like we, I was just talking to my grandmother about this. She, when she arrives at a party, she just turned 90, but she's she's always worried that people don't want her there, that she'll like bring the party down. And she creates this image yeah. of people not wanting her there. Nobody has ever said that to her. In fact, she becomes the life of the party, but she's never realized that. Yeah. Um, so it's she has this anxiety. And as soon as she arrives at a party, she wants to leave. Um, so it, it's I think if she would just tell us when she's there, because she won't tell us, she'll lie about it and say, I need to go home. I'm tired. But after the party, she'll explain. And I keep telling her, just tell us, because I'll reassure you that there, it's not true. Like, right. we want you here. Right. And, and we do that often. Right. And, and, and the reality is, look, your grandmother's 90 and she still feels the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're not so easy to, to just, you know, a, co- a thing about a cognitive distortion is it's not like so easy for someone to say, oh, no, that's wrong. And the person says, oh, okay. Um, Got she it, yeah. still has that feeling, even though people tell her that. And mm-hmm. that's something that she has to, we all struggle with stuff, right? And that mm-hmm. is, that is, um, something that it's not logical. Even when people tell you and reassure you, you may still not feel, you know, it might go a little bit of a way to, to helping you feel better, but. You know, people who are very yeah. socially anxious, they always feel that people are staring at them. Um, yes. And that's not true <laughs> most of the time, yeah. you know. <laughs> mm. It's true. And as we get older, we, we realize nobody really cares. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like everybody's into their own thing. Right. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was 12 years old. I used to wear glasses. I wore glasses from when I was seven. And at 12 years old, I went and got contact lenses for the first time. And the day after I got contact lenses, I walked into school and I was like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. Everyone's going to say, where are your glasses? Not one person said anything to me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we we create these things in our mind, you know, sometimes these worries. What can we, we anticipate the future, what people might think. Um, but I'm thinking back to a word you said before in terms of like us and our partners, in terms of different temperaments. And now I'm thinking of my three kids and they also have very different temperaments. How do we as a parent navigate that if something happens and I don't know, um, we spoke about death a, a little while ago in this podcast as well, you know, when bad news happens or the pandemic, even something happens where we have to explain it to our kids and we know that they'll respond or react very differently. How do we navigate the different temperaments or, or emotions in our kids when we have to tell them the same thing, right? Like that something's happening or that there's going to be a big change. How can we go about that? So, I mean, I think that's such a great question. And all any all of us who have more than one child knows that, you know, even though each child gets half their genes from you and half from the other, you know, from the other parent, how is it that they come out so differently? Um, <laughs> it's true. So, you know, I what I would say is when you have to talk about a difficult thing with your children, look at the one who's the most anxious and tailor it towards mm. that child, right? Um, and an age makes a big difference here, right? You have a 12, nine and six year old, for example. 
Um, you're not going to, if you're going to have a family meeting, you're not going to answer the questions that the 12 year old has maybe in front of the, the 15 year old has in front of the yeah. six year old. They mm -hmm. simply are capable of dealing with different kinds of things. And um, you don't want your six year old, especially if it's an anxious six year old to be waking up with nightmares in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. But you might say to your 15 year old, look, let's continue this conversation offline. Um, we can talk about that kind of stuff later, but here's some of the things that we can talk about. Then you have to do a little bit of tailoring. Like your 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 anxious child is, let's take the beginning of going back to school after a holiday. You know, your anxious child is going to need a little bit more preparation than your other kids. And that might involve a trip to school just to um, just to look around or to have a chat with the teacher after a long break or to um, to prep in ways that your, your non-anxious, less anxious children might not need. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, and, and you do the same if you had a child who is a little bit more impulsive, right, where you might help them. You might say, okay, don't dive into it. Let's, let's plan it first. <laughs> and so, you know, I used to joke because at some point when my kids were young, um, our girls were not great about brushing their beautiful long hair. So we set up a little incentive chart for hair brushing. And my son was like, I want that too. And we said, yeah, but you don't have a problem brushing your hair. However, you can have the incentive chart for whatever else it was, you know, yeah. um, and, you know, picking your clothes up off the floor. And so everybody has their strengths and they also have their own challenges. I love that you'd approach it that way for, you know, having these discussions with our kids, because it's true, I guess, if we bring it down to their level, and then we can have the other conversations with the older ones as well. But it's nice to have that sort of game plan. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking I've received a couple emails this week, and it was about different fears. One parent um, said that their child doesn't want to watch certain movies that they've already watched that has like a plot that might be a little scarier than other movies, or they didn't want to see uh, the count on Sesame Street the, that counts. And then oh, yes. there was, a, yeah, <laughs> Dracula, right. The count. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were wondering how to approach that. I know it's a very specific um, situation, but you know, I've spoken to other parents where they have younger kids that are afraid of these automatic toilet, the the toilets that flush automatically right. because it's loud and it's different, and those bathrooms are scary to them. Regardless of the situation, is there a way to? I don't know. I think about like my own fears when I was young about spiders. And like, I remember my mom saying, like, you have to approach it slowly. Yes. Do we do it that way with our kids? Can we scaffold? Um, I don't know if that's the word you would use. I, I do it in education, but like, do we, can we break it down into baby steps to get to that? Or do we just avoid it? Do we say, okay, you don't want to watch that movie. Let's not watch it. For yeah. I mean, I think there are some things that our children, you know, they find scary. They don't want to watch the count. Fine. Um, however, I think we need to be very careful of not reinforcing our children's avoidance of something that's mm -hmm. scary because the problem with avoidance is it's very reinforcing right? I don't, um, I'm scared to go in an elevator. So I don't go in an elevator. That makes me feel more relieved. I'm even less likely to go in an elevator next time because the fear builds up and because I got such relief when I avoided it. And now I can't go in elevators. So I have a meeting on the 15th floor. I got to walk up 15 floors. Probably not a great idea. So, um, so that is the thing about anxiety is that it's, 
natural for us to want to avoid what is scary to us. And yet in order to, we have to over, we have to face our fears in order to be able to overcome them. And it's a good idea for parents to help their children understand that. Um, and yes, your mother was a hundred percent right that the way we do that, even though there is a, there is a technique called flooding where you simply got it put the person in the room with the snake, you know, and just shut the door. <laughs> no, th- don't, don't, didn't they have TV shows like that before? I think, <laughs> no, thank you. I would never, I would never do <laughs> No, not a, not a, no. not a good thing. Not no. someone like me who was really scared of snakes, you know? Um, but, um, so, so we, we call it actually in the lingo systematic desensitization, little bit by little mm. bit, right? I actually had, I had treatment for snake phobia because I was terrified of snakes. And mm. the first thing I had to do was I got a little card. You remember those little like cigarette cards or Pokemon cards? And it had a mm. cartoon snake and I had to carry it in my wallet. Really? That was the first step. <laughs> and then mm. I had to go get magazine pictures and watch those. And then I was allowed, you know, then I had to go watch on TV and it was always preceded by um, the tools of relaxation. So if you're relaxed, you can't be scared. You can't be anxious. And so what we're doing is exactly what you said. We're scaffolding our children by teaching them, A, there are tools to feel less worried. Those are relaxation tools. And B, we can overcome our fears by C, taking them little bit by little bit, small steps to success. Um, and that's really, really important. How would we do that for the dark? Because I know a lot of parents yeah. <laughs> struggle with this. What would be those baby steps for for kids who are really afraid of the dark and don't want to be alone? Yeah. I mean, so I think the first thing is to, you know, it, sort of in my book, I talk about the steps to emotion coaching, like, which you know, which is helping, you know, recognizing and helping children identify the fact that they're scared of the dark, which I think, you know, I think there are some children who won't say I'm scared of the dark. They just find all the sorts of excuses they can not to go to bed. <laughs> and then when you leave their room, they just switch the light on. So, um, you know, also I think normalizing the fact that fear of the dark is a really typical response in mm. in young children. Very, very typical. And the dark, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, you you put on a movie and it goes dark and the scary music comes on and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very common. And so, so, you know, helping them to identify, oh, looks to me like you might be worried um, because we're going to switch the lights off. And um, and how does it feel when when I switch the light off? Where do you feel it in your body? Well, I get I get a tummy ache um, or um, I I hold onto the bed tightly because I'm I, I think there might be a ghost or whatever it is that the child is worrying about. So I think that's really important to, you know, to, to sort of not just help them identify, but then also validate. It is a lot of kids get really scared of the dark. And, you know, when I was a kid, I also got scared of the dark. Um, so that's uh, that that's then that's the next step. And then after that, that's when you problem solve. So let's think about how we can help you feel less scared of the dark. What we're going to do is we're going to you know, see this big piece of paper here. You and me are each going to take it in turns to have an idea. So your child might say, well, if I can stay in your bed, I won't be scared of the dark. So you're not <laughs> going to say, nice try. You're just going to say, okay, let's write that down. Sleep in mommy and daddy's bed, right? And then you might say, you know, 
Um, I remember that there was that one time where we were staying in a hotel and there was like a, a little light in the hallway and you really fell asleep. But I wonder if we could get you like a nightlight. And then your child, you know, so you go that you get you get lots of ideas. It's really important that the ideas come from both of you or all of you. And then you go through them and you say, okay, we're going to go through the pros and cons. Look, I know you'd love to stay in mom's and dad's bed, but what do you think we're going to say? Yeah, (laughs) cross that one off. (laughs) But the other thing you said, which was, you know, have a hot water bottle or something like that. Yeah, that's really reasonable. We can do that one. And and you generate this sort of this sort of um, you know you can call it a contract or a, an agreement together about what are the things that you you guys are going to do to help your child feel less scared of the dark and then you practice them and then you tweak mm-hmm. them this worked this didn't work let's keep going and and when you do that you're not only helping your child feel less scared of the dark but you're also empowering them they learn that they're part of the solution which is really a crucial life lesson. And I love that you brought in the the problem solving aspect, because when you look at the literature and emotion regulation skills, there are maladaptive and adaptive strategies. And this falls within the adaptive strategies, trying to help them figure out like you're not making the dark go away. It it won't go away. But how can I work with the dark? <laughs> right. And, and, and I also think it's so important that we just come back to the word avoidance, because this is something I'll often, parents won't say that, but their their description of the situation shows me that they're trying to avoid sometimes a situation or talking about something. For example, going to the doctor's office mm. or the, the dentist, some kids have fears around that. Mm. And parents have often told me that they'll wait till the last minute. And that's like, we're going in the car, by the way, going the <laughs> we're going to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. the the dentist. Locked, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I, I don't know, I've always recommended that you take the time to not normalize it but sort of like bring it up two weeks before if you know it's coming up but they don't want to um begin the uh behaviors that will happen around fear and and that their child will often talk about it might not sleep as well because they don't they just want to try to avoid that as much as possible is this a kind of avoidance and is this something we should not be doing yeah Yeah. totally i mean it's Mm. it's a parent doing the avoidance because Mm. they're worried that they're going to get an explosion from the child, the child won't get in the car, you know. And so, uh, you know, I've worked with a few parents individually on these exact kinds of issues. And, you know, it's a tricky balance because what you don't want to say necessarily is we're going to the dentist in two weeks time or in six months time and then have the child count down, especially if it's a child who ruminates, who thinks a lot about things. Yeah. But you do want to talk about it in enough time to prepare the child and put in place some coping strategies, right? So the you know, you might say to the child, so so you might give them a few days notice, you might sit down and figure out what you can do to help them feel better. The morning of, you might say, remember, um, when we get home, we're going to go to the dentist. And I know there were some things that, that, we, that I promised you. So be thinking about your favorite music that we can play in the car, mm-hmm. or um, what's that treat going to be when we get back, um, if all's mm-hmm. gone well, things like that. So so I think it's to our advantage to to sort of practice what we preach when it comes to um, helping kids proactively get through scary situations. And those emotions and that coaching, as you say, is is important, right? If if they don't experience those negative or uncomfortable emotions, how can we coach them right. um, at, when they're young to do this when they're older as well? Right. Or if we don't let them, right? If we say... Mm oh, stop fussing. There's nothing to worry about. The dentist isn't going to hurt you. Then the Mm -hmm. child learns, 
oh, I better not say anything because it's just, I'm just going to be punished. Yeah. I've, I've read about reappraisal when it comes to like emotion regulations. And I've spoken to parents about helping their child kind of look at a situation, you know, something as simple as losing a soccer game. And, and one child might just be devastated that they lost the game. And some parents might be like, you know, they might say, buck up. It's okay. It's just a game. You know, you lose some, you win some. It's, it's not the end of the world versus another parent who might say, well, you tried your best. You know, maybe we need to, you know, your team will practice this week. Maybe it'll be different. Is there a way like, parents seem to struggle with this and 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 not know how to do this with their child um and and i know that I, here we had the um the big ice storm i think it was in 1998 or 1999 where there's a lot of research around that dr susan king from mcgill studied how in in mothers who were pregnant during that time although everybody had experienced the same amount of of trauma and and there was you know no power or electricity for for weeks for some people here in montreal quebec um, the mothers who appraised or looked at the situation differently in terms of it's maybe it's not as bad, they came out very differently from this moment. So how do we kind of take that learning from research and apply it in our home if if we've never done this before? So I think um, the first thing to do is to think about who our child is. Um you know, you talked about the parent who says, you know, my child's devastated when I, um, when they lose a soccer game. And that may be nothing to do with what, what the parent, how the parent responds. Um, we call, you know, we call a subgroup of children, highly sensitive children, right? Mm. Um, I like to use the term big feelings, right? Some kids feel True. things big and other kids, not so much. And that's a gift. When you feel happy, you feel so happy. And it's also hard when you feel sad or hurt or, you know, jealous, big. Mm. Um, so I think that's a very important thing for parents to recognize mm. is what is their child's temperament? Um, and, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of more anxious kids, less anxious kids, more sensitive to the environment, less sensitive to the environment. True. So I think that's very important to understand. I think sometimes parents are worried about talking to kids because especially if they have very sensitive kids or kids with big feelings, they worry that they might, you know, if, if I say to my child, oh are you feeling you know how are you feeling you look sad that might make them feel even more sad and then mm. I can't get out of this whole sort of riptide of sadness and um so you know what I what I encourage parents to do is think about like the in the moment and the afterwards right I am not encouraging parents to wallow in their children's sadness for a half an hour and it is okay to say I see you are sad and um, I can see that you're crying and um, and I guess that episode on the bus really made you feel sad. And then if your child is heaving and sobbing and the hugs won't help, then it's fine to say, you know, oh, I can really see this is so hard. How about this? Um, I know it's you like to snuggle under the covers for a little bit. Why don't you snuggle under the covers for a bit? Maybe plug in some music. Let's take about 15 minutes. And then when you feel a little bit better, let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. So there's no obligation to have to be with your child as they're sobbing. Because I think sometimes parents do inadvertently reinforce that because what they're doing is they're giving their children um, more attention, positive attention when their child's out of control. <laughs> and that's yes. not you necessarily. You want to fix it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
what would you i i I, i'm gonna have to unfortunately end this conversation with you i think i could have spoken to you for two hours first i'd like to say if somebody wants to learn more about what we're talking about i highly encourage them to read your book when the world feels like a scary place i absolutely enjoyed it and i think that I think it came out at the beginning of the pandemic, <laughs> but it was something we all needed during and it came out luckily at the beginning. But if you haven't read it, um, I really encourage you to read it. And um, the link to your book will be in the show notes. And please tell everyone how they can reach you if you do have social media accounts. I will put all of those in the show notes. Um, but just to end our conversation, if you had, you know, two or three pieces of advice for a new parent that's starting in this world of a parenthood and perhaps hasn't thought about emotions and and fears and how to navigate all of this, what would your advice be for them? I think the best thing you can do is take just a few minutes each day to listen to your child doing nothing else. No cell phone, no dishes, you know, okay, walking the dog, that's a great time to do it, you know, (laughs) but really just, um, just take a minute to, to listen. As you listen, you know, I really think it, it listening is a, a skill that we are losing in the era, like just listening sure. in the era of too many distractions. Um, mm-hmm. But when we listen to our kids, then we also pay attention to how they are and what they're feeling. And sometimes kids say boring things. You know, we all say boring things sometimes, <laughs> but tolerate it just a few minutes each day. And that will build up your capacity to both sort of detect what's going on with your child and to be able to be their best emotion coach. That is such amazing advice. Thank you for taking your time to, to chat with me today and with all of us. I hope we get to chat again soon. I do too, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this interview. Don't forget to review the podcast and rate it on iTunes or Spotify and to send me an email at info at kirstenron.com. And if you need help with your child's emotions, don't forget to try my app called WonderGrade. You can try it out for free for two weeks. Uh, you can click the link in the bio uh, or the show notes. I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute for supporting the Kirsten podcast. Your support means the world, not just to me, but to everybody listening, because without the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute, we would not be listening to the Kirsten podcast. So thank you. I'll see you next week. Bye.